This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We begin with Meta's decision to end news access for Canadians on Facebook and Instagram. The company announced today it's officially starting that process, which will take a few weeks. That's in response to the passing of the Online News Act. That new law requires tech giants to pay news outlets for their content shared on their platforms. Welcome back to the Law Bites podcast. After a brief break in the month of August, the podcast is back, and with it, talk about the Online News Act, or Bill C-18. Now, I promise there will be other topics in the weeks ahead, but the dominant digital policy issue in Canada over the past six weeks has unquestionably been the response to the law, notably including Meta's blocking of news links in Canada and the release of draft regulations that could lead Google to follow suit. While supporters of Bill C-18 were convinced that Meta was bluffing when it insisted that it would block news links in response to a law that effectively mandates payments for them, it has become clear that it was no bluff. All news, both Canadian and foreign sources, are blocked on Facebook and Instagram, and the report suggests that the move has had no real impact in use of the platforms. Where it has had an impact, however, is on the news outlets themselves many of whom have experienced significant reductions in referral traffic, which invariably leads to less revenues. Much of the attention is on the big players, but the problem is particularly acute for smaller and independent news outlets. Chris Dinn is the founder and publisher of Torontoverse, a new Toronto news outlet that combines news with mapping technologies to create a new way of engaging with the news. The year-old site was growing quickly, but announced that it was slowing down in response to Bill C-18's impact. Chris joins me on the podcast to talk about the business, the effect of the government legislation, and what he thinks should come next. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm so glad you've taken the, the time to, to come out. You know, Bill C-18 has had a huge impact, of course, on the Canadian media sector, most notably with Meta blocking news links on Facebook and Instagram. And it seems that just about everyone's waiting to see how Google responds uh, in the coming weeks. Now, a lot of that focus has, of course, been on the impact on some of the so-called like, household media names. There's been some focus, of course, on CPC, on uh, Post Media, and some of the other more conventional, larger news- newspaper-type outlets. But I think your story places lesser-known media startups in the spotlight. Um, so why don't we we start there? I'd love to start with a bit of your background. As, as we record this, I see a, an Emmy Award, uh, literally the trophy, in the background. So I'd love to know the, the story behind that. But a bit about you and a bit about Torontoverse. You know, what is it? Why why did yeah. you start it? And, and what made it different? Sure. Well, I think I'll start with, with Torontoverse, um, because I think that's really where all the centers um, Toronoverse is a chance or an attempt uh, to reinvent local media coverage. Um, we're trying to place it inside a, a fabric of open data and on a map, an interactive map, um, and you know, but, but still publish a lot of the traditional things that local newspapers have always published: news and, and sports and transit, and arts, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, through doing this, this interactive uh, map create new opportunities for for local companies to market themselves. So, so new advertising opportunities that are easy to buy and are backed by the same kind of data that you know Facebook and Meta, Google are able to use to make their ads so attractive to, to local advertisers. Um, and that brings me to my background before starting Toronoverse. 
I was actually one of the tech leads at Google Ad Manager, which is a very large ad server. Um, I was in New York working with that team for a number of years. My focus was on actually video ads, um, particularly live video ads. That's where the Emmy comes from. We, we worked a lot with CBS and, and AMC and Fox and Disney and a lot of other publications. And at some point, um, our team was nominated for an Emmy for some of the video stream um, stitching work that we did. Um, but you know, one of the things I learned working at Ad Manager is that there's a real opportunity here. Um, local media um, isn't really able to capture local marketing dollars the way that it used to. And Torontoverse, I think, is really about trying to, to bring that back, bring okay, back that yeah. virtuous cycle. And it's it's super interesting. I mean, when you go on to onto the site to see that kind of mapping, don't pun intended, of <laughs> of of the map with news and other information is a, a way of looking at at news and information that that we don't see as much. We certainly don't see it from some of the conventional spaces. You know, when did when did this start up, and what kind of response have you gotten? So we launched just a year ago, um, almost exactly a year ago. So we had a really up until the summer. We you know up until August. We had a really great year. Um, we were growing pretty quickly. You know, we'd seen some challenges. Twitter was very strong for us last fall and is not so strong for us now, but we'd been very strong, you know, on Facebook. Um, people responded very well. The site traffic had been growing, you know, month over month in the double digits for, you know, 12 solid months. I'm very happy with, with that. Um, and more importantly, we we're getting the kind of interaction from people we really wanted to see. You know, part of our site, you know, that, that map is about indexing news. Local news makes sense to put it on a map. Um, but when users interact with that map, they tell us the parts of the city they care about. You know, some people really care about Scarborough. Some people really care about Etobicoke. They care about different parts of the GTA. And the map lets lets users show us that. And in turn, we can use that to to help local advertisers save money and, and you know, target the audiences they want to reach without mining people's history or looking for cookies or or behavioral data or anything like that. And how, you know, how do you grow something like that from from scratch? Is it social media? Is it search? Uh, is it your own advertising? You know, what's what's the strategy to start generating so, that kind of growth? That's a great question. So how do you launch a publication in the modern era? We spent a lot of time experimenting with this. Um, and you can do, you know, you can you can advertise it a little bit and that, that's good. Um, but I think, you know, what we learned through experimentation is that Canadians really consume their news on Facebook, on Twitter, on social media platforms, um, but particularly Facebook and, and uh, to a lesser extent, Twitter or X. Um, you know, we would occasionally, we would buy ads to promote, uh, like if you have a new story, people have never heard of us. So our job is simply the brand new product is to show it to new people. So occasionally we'd promote a story or buy an ad promoting our website here or there, but overwhelmingly we relied on organic reach on social media platforms to find users. Um, you know, we, we didn't launch with a budget, you know, with a multi-million dollar marketing budget. We launched with the intention of starting small and building an audience as we built our technology. Um, so yeah, we were really relying on social media to build our audience. Okay, so that's interesting. So as you're you're going about building this Bill C eight, the debate over Bill C eighteen is taking place. Were you paying attention to the bill at all? And and if not, when did it really begin to hit your radar screen? So I watched the bill closely um, throughout the time it was uh, being debated. Um, I paid a little bit of attention to the committee discussions and things like that. You know, in general, I would say that it was hard to to tell how much of this bill was a negotiating strategy and very, very strong rhetoric meant to sort of bring Facebook and, and Google to the table to negotiate and how much of it was serious policymaking. Um, I think, I, I feel foolish admitting this, I assume that it wasn't serious policymaking for a very long time. And it wasn't until late April that I noticed that the rhetoric had heated up to a point that, you know, I felt it was going to be very difficult for Facebook and Meta to accept the terms the government was offering, but also very difficult for the government to back down um, with the rhetoric that it, it was using. And that's certainly where we find our, ourselves now. You're right that um, that Absolutely. that both that both have 
have kind of hardened their positions on on both sides of this, which it seems makes that an out more and more difficult. Uh, obviously, you know, sort of listeners will know, and, and many Canadians will know that that Facebook and Instagram began blocking news traffic uh, as we record this about six weeks ago, and it played out over a few weeks. But it's been a complete block now for for quite some time, certainly far longer than than was the case in Australia. So any thought that this was just going to be Australia all over again, I think, is has largely gone away. What have what's what have been the implications for your site's traffic and for your for your for your business as a whole from the from the news link blocking on on those two platforms? Well, the traffic, you know, the, for us, unfortunately, we were getting upwards of fifty percent of our traffic from Facebook on a, a monthly basis, and so what that's mean what that means is a, that traffic. I guess our organic craft traffic has ticked up a little bit, but the majority of that traffic has been lost. Um, what's worse for us though is that it's also closed off our opportunities for growth. Imagine, you know, we've got a new product. It's not very old and, and media products, you know, they evolve a lot in their early years. You really need to, to show them to people. You need to introduce people to your product. You know, unfortunately, unlike most other businesses in Canada, we're unable to use the number one marketing tool that Canadian businesses across the country use. And that's that's Facebook. Okay, wow. So that, that's pretty dramatic. How what, what's it meant in practical terms to the business? How have you responded that, you know, if you're saying half or even more than half of your traffic coming from a single source that feels a bit existential. Uh, yeah, well, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. And my response, you know, one of the advantages of being small and new is that we can be nimble. Um, from my point of view, the question becomes, okay, I don't want this website to go offline. I don't want to run out of money. Um, and so what I've had to do basically is, is I've furloughed my staff. We had, we had a developer and an editor who were working full-time on the project as well as myself. Um, I furloughed my staff um, for the time being, and we are basically, you know, we, we're still releasing content. We had two full-time staffers, but Tronoverse was made by a, a, a huge team of freelance contributors from across Canada and across the city. Um, so we will continue to publish content, but it will be at a much slower pace. Okay, so so some real-world impact. I mean, it's interesting that that you mentioned that, you know, freelancers play a big role in in the in the in the news development side or the news content side of the site because uh, the regulations that have come out around C18 reward it, assuming that that Google does participate in this if, if they're at least in uh, it rewards those that have full-time journalists employed and you know the the implications even for a site like yours with that investment is that you know a lot of that investment might not even be rewarded based on the way that the regulations are set up I mean, that, that's hugely disappointing to me personally, um, from a policy perspective, because I, I really see from a local journalism perspective, independent journalists would say, imagine a strong newsletter following of, of potentially Substack users or Patreon users who support them. Um, you know, a community that's, that's you know, supported by a lot of journalists with strong independent audiences who can then bring their content to a platform like ours. I mean, that that's win-win. We can, we can you know, help them expand their audience, help them find new readers they didn't find before, and they can help us get content that's, you know, really good for our platform. Um, and, you know, everybody's better off, you know, in, in that environment. I'd love to be able to hire people full time. And I think if we grew, we would. But I think it's it's great to have these independent journalists in the community. So it's sad to see them discouraged by the policy like this. I think that's true. You know, as as we talk, there's still some uncertainty how Google will respond to those regulations. What do you see as the impact if if they choose to follow Meta's lead and, and remove news from from Google search? So one thing I've learned talking to other publishers is that we, you know, being so new and so tech oriented, uh, we were heavily dependent on Facebook in a way that a lot of other publications are, are more dependent on Google for traffic, um, for traffic volume. So I think a lot of publishers are looking at the situation. They're not happy because they've lost 
you know, maybe 25 or 30% of their, their traffic from, from meta, but they're probably very scared, you know, a lot more scared about losing all of the traffic from Google as well, which could, you know, bring them also up over 50%. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's scary and it's scary for a lot of reasons. Yeah, no, I think that's right. No, it, you know, when you, when you know just how reliant you are, especially when you're starting from essentially from scratch uh, on social media in particular, uh, that highlights how there is this outsized impact on on the innovative side of the ledger when it comes to to news media. Now, some of your public comments have, I think, interestingly focused on the investment aspects of that, mm-hmm. you know, the willingness of those to invest in media in Canada in light of, of some of those challenges. It, it feels a bit like an underexplored issue. We haven't heard a lot of people talking about the implications of this for investment and innovation in the space. Can can you explain or, or talk a bit about that issue from your perspective? Yeah, because this is where it's really, you know, we we were building, I think, a pretty innovative uh, piece of technology. If we'd been, built, been able to build a really successful ad model for, for local media in Toronto, it's the kind of thing that we could easily replicate in other cities across the country. Um, no, So for us, we, we view what we're doing as a growth operation, as a growth business, but, you know, investors... Think about a lot of things when they're trying to fund a business. One of the things to think about is the size of the market. Toronto is a really big market. Canada is a great market. Um, the other thing they might ask is, what's your access to that market? You know, if everybody wants your product, but there's no road to get from you know your farm to the market, then then it's going to be hard for your business to be successful. Um, and if you know there might be a great audience full of readers in Toronto to consume our content, but if we can't access that market, if the traditional ways that people you know present new products, new digital products to to users aren't available to us. You know, there's less of a chance of us being successful and there's less of a reason to invest in, in what we do. But worse than that, there's a, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty now that the government has actively intervened, you know, in a strongly negative way in, in the sort of the media startup ecosystem here in Canada. There's not a lot of faith that even if they were to recognize the problem, that the next steps they take to fix it, you know, would be would be constructive. Right. There's there's a lack of trust amongst you know, a lot of investors don't like to invest in the media. It hasn't been a really successful business um, for quite a while. As you'll see, a lot of the big media companies in Canada are struggling. You know, we're doing something very innovative, I think, that changes that for us. But we do have to fight that uphill battle when we're talking to investors. And unpredictable government intervention that has material impact on your business, that's the kind of thing that really scares investors away. Okay, so a big impact on the investment side. Uh, you know, given given the reduction in traffic, potential for even more reduction in traffic, and and the exit of potential investors into the space you know where do you foresee others moving moving in the, in this as, as this continues to unfold um, you know there, there's been a lot of emphasis of course on some of the large legacy players and the impact that they have felt uh, in the media space for the better part of a decade but the government oftentimes did not focus much attention on the emergence of many new models on the emergence of many new players. You know, do, do you see in some ways your experience almost being the thin edge of the wedge where we start to see this play out more and more as we move up to the stack? Yeah, absolutely. We are going to see this um, cascade. You know, we're a free ad supported publication. You know, we need broad reach in our market to be successful. You know, broad reach is how you build, you know, big audiences that let you, you know, support a strong advertising uh, division. Other publications that might rely more on subscription, you know, a lot of media companies have moved towards subscriptions, you know, subscriptions are a great business model and they can really support you when things like this happen. But, you know, we're in a tight market. Canadians are seeing their mortgages jump by hundreds of dollars a month. It's a hard market to sell subscriptions in. And the nature of the subscription business is you really need to show your content to a lot of people before they decide to subscribe. You know, YouTube, I'm not sure what their subscription um, rate is, but I remember, you know, hearing it was somewhere around two, two percent, one and a half percent, something like that, you know. If you're generous, you say you have to show your content to 50 people. 
And typically you have to show it to them over and over again. Eventually they say, yeah, you know, I really like this content. I want to subscribe. If publishers can't reach users on Facebook, you know, it's it's going to be a lot harder for them to keep those subscriptions growing. And as things churn, as, as expenses change for, for Canadians out there, it's going to be harder to grow those businesses too. It's just going to take a little longer for them to feel it. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pretty dire situation. It's a really interesting observation about how th- this extends to the subscription paywalled world as well, which is sometimes the knee jerk reaction. It's like, well, why don't you just set up a paywall and, and generate subscription revenue? But uh, this has an impact on that side of the business as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, given that situation, I guess it raises the question, what do you think the government should be doing about Bill C-18? We, we certainly still see a lot saying that, you know, government needs to stand up to big tech, arguing that, you know, this is just, this is a power play. And at the end of the day, um, you just can't back down and the consequences are what they, what they are. You know, wh- where do you stand on, on what the government ought to be doing, given, given where it finds itself, given where everyone finds the, the current situation? So I think, you know, I, I absolutely think it's a problem that, that Google and Facebook have such outsized control on the Canadian media diet, on how Canadians consume information. I think that is a problem. So I want to say that up front. I think it does require policy intervention. But I think that the way that C-18 has gone about solving this problem has been a huge mistake. And the government needs to repeal it, backpedal, and, you know, come up with some sort of support for local media. I was shocked when the, the block came down and there was not even a communication of, you know, a plan for support um, for, for independent media organizations like us. Um, I think they really need to unwind the situation and realize that this is not, you know, this is not actually helping the situation at all. I'm going to try to get things back to where they were. I'm not sure how easy that will be to do. I don't know how badly things have gone um, in negotiations with Meta, but I really think they need to step back very quickly and reassess um, how to achieve these policy goals more effectively. Yeah, no, it's oh, it, does, it doesn't sound very promising, certainly with Meta and even the regulations on the Google side didn't really show much signs of of backing down. So it does feel yeah. like a bit of an escalation. What should the government be doing to to support media? Or do you be, do you believe they ought to be supporting media? You hinted that that you thought there needed to be something in light of the what the kind of real world impact that we've seen from C18. You know, what do you see as the as I guess, you know, if they could wipe this slate clean, what would you be doing? And then alternatively, I suppose without the the slate being clean with with the with realities of what C18 has brought, you know, what next steps are available to try to address the issue if, if, other than sort of going back to square one? So I do think that um, that there is a problem here. And I think the fact that Meadow was able to just drop news coverage in Canada, you know, and not affect its overall business, this is not something that's going to have a huge impact on Meta's bottom line when they, you know, do quarterly results and it's not going to affect their stock. This is a great example of how it's bad for Canada that these companies have so much power. Um, I think the, I, you know, Canadians need access to journalism. That's I, I absolutely believe that. I started a media company. I absolutely believe that. You know, but I think the idea that what's wrong is that Canadians need a way to pay for journalism. It's sort of like that. That's first order thinking. It's it's missing the the heart of the problem. Um, what Canadians are really missing is a local media ecosystem, um, a case where local marketing dollars are spent to support the creation of local content. This is a this is a virtuous cycle. This is like a big flywheel that, when it's spinning effectively, really helps build strong communities. You know, you think about it when when that money is spent with a local publication, it goes to funding, you know, stories being told, coverage of the community, things that enrich the very community that the advertiser is spending money to support. Um, you know, when they spend money with with Facebook or with Google, that that's going to pay for somebody's pool in Menlo Park or Mountain View. Um, it, it's not creating that same feedback cycle that drives these vibrant communities that we all want to live in, right? And that we're we're all seeing sort of like sucked away from us bit by bit as these media entities disappear. 
for me, the way that you bring that back, the way that you make journalism or, or that local media ecosystem thrive is you make it easier for people to start these small businesses. I mean, I guess it's easy for me to say that, but I really think that, you know, if we could make CBC content, um, you know, video and audio licensable in the same way that Canadian press content is, uh, maybe you pay a small fee or, you know, we should also subsidize access to the Canadian press and allow people like like me or, or other publications you know, it could be major publications to have access to a strong base of you know well-reported, reliable journalism content um, that they can then use to build publications on top of. So they've been they can augment that with you know richer local news or local perspectives and things like that 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 create a compelling local publication and try to recapture that that you know that virtuous cycle that that flywheel that Toronto was trying Torontoverse was trying to restart. Yeah. No, I, I well, I, I that that notion of of open content certainly from CBC. Uh, is something that I've, I've talked about for a long time, and, and we see others raising it as well. Ironically, of course, CBC stands to be perhaps the biggest beneficiary of all of, of C18, which seems to move them more and more in the opposite direction as opposed to one in which content gets shared. It's looking to monetize content by lining up in exactly the same way that the the private side of the world does. It's unfortunate because I think you know, I mentioned Canadian press largely because I think it's a great precedent for what a relationship with the CBC could look like for publications that want to republish their content. You know, you can agree to certain standards, you can make sure that it's credited to the CBC and that it's presented in a certain way. But, you know, these wire services or content sharing services are, are well established in the media business. And you know, what's great about the CBC is that they produce a lot of content that could help people build multimedia products that that really are, are very difficult to go from zero to one um, in, in the modern world. No, it's an interesting idea. I mean, it does occur to me, I guess, just to close with this, that you know, the 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 prescription that that you are raising in some ways is almost the the polar opposite of what C eighteen has tried to do. Not not so much not with regard to the focus on trying to get Meta and and Google to pay up for linking to news, but rather the emphasis quite clearly in C eighteen on the legacy providers. It's on sort of the 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 large players that have clearly faced real challenges to trying to provide them with the support. And what you're saying is we need to, somebody, it seems to me, we need to turn our attention to the next generation of news players, the next generation of technology, next generation of innovators in this space, and find ways to solve our solutions, not by trying to fix what was wrong necessarily with some of the players that have struggled, but rather to find new players who identify ways of doing it differently. And if we restart that flywheel, right, if we get that cycle going again, those publications will also benefit. They won't benefit disproportionately. You know, they'll benefit in, in proportion to the communities that they serve. But but I think we'll all see, um, you know, we'll all see more local advertising dollars spent supporting local content, which is going to make our communities better. It's going to make all of these media businesses better. It'll be a rising tide that helps everybody. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, it's nice to end on on an optimistic note like that. This has been a pretty pessimistic yeah. situation for the last number of months. And it, it's good to know that there are, there are there is that still that kind of optimism in those possibilities. Chris, I know you've been going through a lot. Uh, I appreciate you taking the the time to come on the podcast and, and talk a bit about your your real world experience about what's been taking place, uh, trying to create a, a, media, a new media company and dealing with the, the implications and the outcomes of, from Bill C-18. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thanks. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca 
or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.